I don't think I'll ever forget my middle school math teacher, Mr. Haugen. Uh, I can tell you the quadratic equation because he used to walk around the classroom with his guitar on, singing it to us. And maybe someday, if you're lucky, I will sing to you the quadratic equation. Uh, but that's not the reason I will always remember Mr. Haugen. I will always remember Mr. Haugen because up in the corner of the room, back corner of the room, behind his desk, on the wall was a button. And Mr. Haugen would begin the school year by saying, whatever you do, do not push that button. Uh, things will happen that you don't know about if you push that button. And you will be tempted to push the button. When I leave the classroom to speak to somebody in the hallway, you will be tempted to run over and push that button. But do not do it. When there's a substitute teacher who does not understand the nature of this classroom, who steps in, and when she's not looking, you will be tempted to push that button. Under no circumstances should you push that button. So what do you think a middle school boy like me did when Mr. Haugen left the room? I went over and I pushed that button. And I came back and sat back down on my seat. And the first question, of course, that he comes back into the room and asks is, did anyone push the button? Of course, I, I did not say anything. I remained completely silent and so did other people in the class. Uh, this was often an occurring thing in our classroom. And the next time he left the classroom, I wouldn't just push it once, but because apparently nothing happened when you pushed the button. I pushed it several times just to make sure it registered, if it, if it did something. Now, why, why would we do something like that? Why would middle school boys like me or middle school girls in that classroom disobey Mr. Haugen's commands not to push that button? Why, why do we deliberately violate such a command? Why would we rebel against Mr. Haugen's authority? Why do we do the same thing with God? We do the same thing with God. We rebel against God's good authority and violate God's good commands because, like our first parents, we want autonomy and authority. We want to be in charge. We want to give the commands and command obedience. And this morning, as we study Genesis chapter 3, we encounter one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. Uh, not only does this chapter teach us that there was a real first man and a real first woman, not only does it teach us that there was a real rebellion against God with real consequences, not only does it teach us that a sinful nature is passed down to all mankind, after all, that's why there's sin and rebellion, wickedness and violence in our world today. But it also teaches us that God is really gracious and that God will not leave us to our own sin and misery. Genesis 3 teaches us that God will send His Son to redeem and rescue sinners from eternal ruin. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about together from God's Word this morning. If you haven't done so already, Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage, I believe, beginning on page 2. So far in Genesis, in our study in Genesis, we've examined chapters 1 and 2. We've learned that God made the world. He made everything and everyone for His glory. In chapter 2, we were reminded not only that God gave man and woman life, but He gave them labor and love in His sanctuary garden. They were to live there with Him in perfect communion for all eternity. And all that God asked was that they love Him, love each other, and keep His command. This morning, in Genesis 3, we see it all unravel. Here we learn why we no longer live in a world of perfect bliss and blessing. Here we learn why we no longer live in perfect communion with God. Here we learn why our relationships are so often filled with conflict, and why love sometimes turns to hate. Here we learn why our labor is often suffused with pain. 
Here we learn why we now live in a world burdened by depravity, difficulty, disease, decay, and even death. And yet, here we learn why there is hope. Why the fall, while it brought us, while it brought mankind, all mankind, into an estate of sin and misery. Here we learn that God purposed to overcome our misery by His mercy. We'll consider Genesis 3 in two sections under two headings. I think there's an insert there in your bulletin that provides you an outline. The first heading is this, man's rebellion. We'll see that in verses 1 to 13 of Genesis chapter 3. And then we'll look at God's response in verses 14 to 24. And the main point of Genesis chapter 3 is this. Here's the point of the chapter in a single sentence. Man has rebelled, but God will redeem through his son. Man has rebelled, but God will redeem through his son. In fact, you should take this chapter personally to heart. Here's the message of Genesis 3 to you. You have rebelled, but God offers redemption in Jesus Christ. You have rebelled, but God offers you redemption in Jesus Christ. Let's turn and consider our first point, man's rebellion. Let's begin just by reading Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 3, beginning there in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, in these verses, we meet a slithering and speaking serpent. We're put on edge by the fact that he's crafty. He is as sinister as he is shrewd. Subsequent scriptures like Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, identify this serpent as Satan, as the devil. And we learn especially in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 17, that initially Satan was an angel. But that at the genesis of the universe, he and other angels rebelled against God and were thrown down from heaven. Not surprisingly, we're going to see here, he's going to lead an earthly rebellion. And the consequences will be the same. Just as he was thrown down out of heaven, Adam and Eve will be thrown out of God's glorious presence for their rebellion. The devil is incredibly powerful. Apparently, he has the ability to possess a creature and use it to do unnatural things like speak. Beloved, we underestimate the devil to our own peril. There's a reason that the scriptures tells us that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8. There's a reason that we're told in James chapter 4 verse 7, resist the devil. There's a reason why Jesus tells us in John 8.44 that the devil does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of lies. His cunning character comes out here, doesn't it? 
And when Satan speaks, notice what he does in verse 1. He questions God's word. He twists God's word and he limits God's generosity and goodness when he asks, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you see how he inculcates doubt? Jog your memory, Eve. Are you really sure God said what he said? Satan, he distorts God's decree. You see it there and suggests that God said, you can't eat from any tree in the garden. And in the process, he diminishes God's goodness, suggesting that God, he, he didn't really want to give them very much food. He's miserly. He's like Scrooge. What God actually said is over in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Look over to those verses. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. God said this, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do you see how Satan completely reversed God's word? Completely twisted. God was as clear as day. Adam, you could eat from every tree. Notice Eve's response there in verse 2. She really starts off kind of fine, but then she falters and then furnishes her own distortion of God's word. She recognizes that they may eat of the trees of the garden. She identifies the tree that she's not supposed to eat of. So far, so good. But then she adds, neither shall you touch it. We should be careful not to remove portions of God's word like the serpents did, like Satan did. But we should also be careful not to make the error, the mistake, the sin that Eve did by adding to God's word. This was not the end of Eve's failing, for she also diminished the consequences for disobedience. Did you notice that the phrase, lest you die? Eve suggests there's really this, this possibility of death if we disobey. When what the Lord God said was that death would certainly come as a consequence of disobedience. The Lord said, in the day you eat it, you will surely die. It's not that disobedience might lead to death, but that disobedience must lead to death. Death is the necessary consequence of disobedience. And when Eve diminished the consequences of disobedience, Satan saw his opening, didn't he? And he exclaimed, you will not surely die. He openly challenged God's word, completely, utterly disagreed with it. He saw that if Eve doubted the certainty of death, then he would do all that he could to drive that doubt deeper. His goal was to move Eve from doubting death for disobedience to believing that what she was really being denied in the fruit of that tree was the pleasure of divine life, the authority and power of God. So the serpent, Satan, tempted Eve with being like God, thereby having the authority to decide what is good and what is evil. Satan encouraged the creature to take the th throne of the Creator. And up to this point, Adam and Eve, they were living under God's good authority. They were trusting God's word concerning what was right and wrong. And Satan was calling them to reject God's authority, to rebel against it and to decide for themselves what was good and what was evil. Just think about what has happened in this conversation between Eve and the serpent. We see it all the time when we're tempted to sin. God's word is distorted. God's generosity is doubted. God's judgment is diminished. This pathway eases us into accepting the lie of Satan and giving in to sin. Do you see how important it is to know God's word by heart, by mind, to memorize it? Do you see how important it is to live with a thankful heart for God's generosity, not to view him as miserly and Scrooge-like, 
but generous in giving so much. Do you see how important it is to remember that he will come to judge the living and the dead? If you go back to Jesus' temptations in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke, Luke 4, you'll see how Jesus battled temptation, Satan's temptation, by clinging to God's word, by correctly remembering it and reminding Satan of it, and by trusting his Father's care and generosity. That's why we'll sing at the end of the service that Jesus is a true and better Adam. Because where Adam failed in the temptation, Jesus prevailed. He was faithful. He knew God's word, and he trusted his Father. Well, in verse 6, we see that Eve, she's taken in. Her eyes are now laser-focused on that fruit. And through her eyes, we see that the rebellion really has begun. She saw as good what God saw as evil. She desires what God declares is off-limits. Desire is so powerful, isn't it? I mean, think about when you last experienced desire. There's something we want. We must have it. We must push the button. The autonomy and the authority was too great to pass up. To decide for ourselves, too great to pass up. We would do well to remember what the great Puritan minister Thomas Brooks once said. Satan, like a fisherman, baits the hook according to the appetites of the fish. Look, when you are tempted, when Satan is tempting you, he is playing on the sinful desires of your heart. Beware the desires of your heart. Not everything you want is good. Not everything that appears sweet really is. Children, please hear me. Not everything you want is good. There's a reason your parents say no, and that reason is love, because they love you and often want to protect you from what will harm you. Often what you want to eat is not good for you. Believe and trust your parents. Believe that God has given them to you as a gift to lead and guide you in the paths of wisdom and His righteousness. It's not everything we want is good. Not everything that appears sweet really is. Some things are bad and some things are bitter. Eve sees and Eve sins. How many times have we done the same? She sees and she sins. She sees, and takes, and eats, and then she hands some fruit over to her husband, and he eats. And Moses tells us, Eve was not alone. When the serpent actually said, you shall not eat, and you will not die, that you is actually in the plural, in the Hebrew. The serpent was speaking to the man just as much as he was speaking to the woman. Eve was deceived, as she will confess in just a few moments, but Adam was there all along and making a willful choice to listen to the voice of the serpent and to the voice of his wife rather than the voice of God. They have broken God's command. They have violated the one law that God gave them in the garden. They aligned themselves with the serpent and listened to his voice instead of God's voice. And it would be hard for us to put into words just how horrific this act of cosmic rebellion really was. Not only did God give Adam everything that they should have ever wanted in that garden, but he gave them his own presence right there with them in the garden. Is there anything else that we need but him? Anyone else that we need but him? They sinned. They rebelled. And because Adam is the representative head of the whole human race, with all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, we sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. 
We have ratified Adam's disobedience in our own lives. Yes, we should all, we, we, we all really would have taken that fruit if we were standing at that tree. And we have all tried to do what Adam and Eve did in verse 7. See, at the end of Genesis chapter 2, we were told that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. But now we're told that their eyes were opened. And now they recognize their nakedness, and now they are clearly ashamed. You see, the serpent only told them a half-truth. Their eyes were opened, just as he said they would be. But what they now see is that they're naked. Their faults and their flaws are exposed to one another. And now they know that what they have done is evil before the all-seeing eye of God. Their original righteousness, their innocence now gone. And now they were corrupt in their whole natures. Rebellion is revealing. And when our consciences are working, we see our sin and rebellion for what it is. An attempt to take God's throne. Adam and Eve's fig leaves were not just for them. They knew deep down that they needed to cover their sin in God's sight. Indeed, their bodily coverings were indicative of the need of something to cover the sin which their souls had committed. And in our pride, we are tempted to do the same. We are tempted to think that we can fashion coverings of our good works that will make us acceptable in God's sight. But friends, all of our attempts at good works are just as pitiful and just as paltry as Adam and Eve's fig leaves. We need a greater covering that only God can give. And Adam and Eve knew that too. Deep down, they knew that their rebellion has led to a rupture in their relationship with God. That's what we see in verses 8 to 13. Follow along as I read verses 8 to 13 where we see the rupture of this relationship laid bare. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me, of the, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. In these verses we see that the man and the woman, they hear the sound of the Lord God, and they hide from Him. But we also see the Creator call to them and confront them in their sin. And through these verses, we see the rupture of the relationship between man and God exposed. And yet God is full of grace toward them, isn't He? They begin, of course, with Adam and Eve hearing the familiar sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Think of it, He has not left the garden. He has not left them in their sin. The all-knowing God graciously makes His presence known among sinners, and yet, these sinners hide, don't they? Clearly, communion with the Creator has been compromised. They're not seeking Him. They're seeking shelter from Him, from His presence and from His sight. And think about it. We've all tried to hide from God, haven't we? In our sin and our shame, we've hoped that He wouldn't seek us or see us. I wonder if that's what you're doing right now. And yet, I wonder if God continues to make His presence known to you. Is the Lord God loudly walking around in your life, making His presence known to you? 
Is he calling to you? Like he called to Adam and Eve. Is he saying, where are you? It's not as though the all-knowing, all-seeing God didn't know where Adam and Eve were. He knew where they were hiding. The reason for this question, it's a gracious question, is to encourage and elicit a confession of sin. And Adam actually exposes the state of his relationship to God the Father, doesn't he, when he says, I was afraid. In his sinless state, he had no needs to fear. But in his sinful state, he had every reason to fear the holy God. Sin leads to death. It incurs the justice and judgment of God. In fact, in a very real sense, Adam and Eve were already dead, spiritually speaking. Adam, he confesses his fear. Do you notice that he confessed he was naked in verse 10? You should make a stop and ask, Now, wait a minute, Adam. Weren't you clothed? Did, didn't you put fig leaves on? You're not naked anymore, right? I mean, if the fig leaves work so well, why would you hide? If the fig leaves were legitimate coverings of their nakedness, then why would he have to confess that he's naked? Because spiritually speaking, they were still naked in God's sight. They were still exposed and their sin was laid bare. Nothing that man manufactures to make himself acceptable in God's sight gives him the covering that he really needs. All of your donations of food or clothing or walking little old ladies across the street, all of your properly paying your taxes, all of your obedience to the traffic laws, do nothing to deal with your sin before God in His sight. This is true of our good deeds. If our good deeds work so well, why do we try to keep piling them up? As if we expect God will say that that's wonderful. Yes, all, your account is settled. If things are really fine with God, then why do we seek to hide? Why do we try to sow more and more fig leaves onto our lives? Well, it's because we know deep down that our fig leaves, our good works are an insufficient covering. Adam and Eve hid. You hide. We all hide. Because there's been a rupture in our relationship with God. And we realize, we know deep down, there's nothing that we can do to settle the account and pay the debt. Before the Lord gives comfort, He confronts. We see it in these questions, don't we? I mean, the Lord always asks the most direct and piercing questions, doesn't he? Who told you that you were naked? That's an invitation to come and share what's, what's happened. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What is this you have done? There's no escaping the Lord's prosecution. Friend, there's no escaping the Lord's prosecution of your sins. What is worse, he knows the whole truth of the answers to each of those questions. Like a good lawyer who never asks a question he doesn't know the answer to. Friend, he knows all the answers to all the questions he'll ever ask you. He knows them better and truer than you will even sometimes admit and confess. And at first, both the man and the woman try to deflect blame, don't they? Amazingly, Adam, he has the audacity to shift blame to the woman and to the Lord. Right? He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. What happened to Adam's wedding vows just a chapter ago? I love this woman with my flesh and bone. I'll lay it down for her. And yet, he sends her right before the judgment seat of God without protecting her or caring for her. Adam blamed his wife. He blamed the Lord God who gave him to her. If this doesn't tell us that communion with the Creator has been lost and that relationships between men and women 
and all humans will soon unravel. What, what does? We need to be clear. Our sin is never the Lord's fault. Our sin is never another person's fault. Our sin is never Satan's fault. Eve tried to pass blame too, didn't she? She tried to pass it to the servant. Remember, he only baited the hook according to the appetites of the fish, the flesh. She took, he took. She ate, he ate. You sinned, I sinned. Friends, your communion with God will never be restored as long as you blame God or blame others. True confession, real confession is declaration of guilt without deflection. Let me say that again. It's something that we need to grasp in our lives. True confession, real confession, is a declaration of guilt without deflection. Here's the reason that we should honestly confess our sins to God. Because He's gracious. He's good and He is ready to forgive. He is ready to rescue and redeem ruined rebels from sin and death. That's God's response to Adam and Eve's sin, to our sin. He is gracious. He purposes to rescue and redeem us from sin. That's what we see in our second point, second half really of this chapter, as we look at God's response. Follow along as I read. I'm just going to read verses 14 to 19 for now. But as I read, notice that the questions of divine interrogation have stopped. And now they're simply statements from God of what is taking place, his response to the rebellion. Begin there in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain... You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Well, in verses 14 and 15, we see God speak to the servant. He curses him. He tells him there's going to be constant conflict. And he tells them, you will be conquered. As we read these verses, we need to remember that Moses is telling the people of Israel why the world is really the way it is. And verse 14 explains why the serpent is the most despised creature on the face of the earth, why it slithers on its stomach, and why we shouldn't have them as pets, I tend to think. It's not, it's not that serpents had legs before, but now they don't. That's not what's happening here. Uh, similarly, in these uh, curses, these judgments, it's not that the woman wouldn't bear children before, but now she would, or that the man didn't work before, but now he does. No, what we're, be told, what we're being told is that the slithering of the serpents reminds us that Satan deserves the lowest place and that he's going to be defeated. God's curse is not so much aimed at serpents as animals, 
as it was aimed at Satan who stood behind the serpent and used it for its deceit, his deceit. Satan is cursed because he challenged God and concocted a rebellion. He tempted Eve to eat of the fruit and now he will eat of the dust. This expression, this eating of the dust, is actually an expression of defeat throughout the scriptures. So, in Psalm 72 verse 9 we read, May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. The phrase is one of shameful defeat. So the serpent's slithering reminds us of Satan's subjugation. He will not defeat our God. Our God will defeat him. What is more, we see there's going to be constant conflict. The serpent's offspring will constantly wage war against the offspring of the woman. That's the reality of the world. There are only two kinds of people in this world. God's people from the seed of the woman and not God's people of the seed of the serpent. A seed is another way of saying offspring and particularly son. So there are only children of the woman or children of God in this world and children of the devil as Jesus and the Apostle John would say. There will be constant conflict between these two seeds, these two lines. And this really explains so much of the history that we read of Israel and why they face pharaohs with golden snakes on their heads or face giants with armor that's scale-like, like a snake. It explains the conflict that's going to emerge in the next chapter between Cain and Abel. Cain, the seed of the serpent, and Abel, the seed of the woman. It explains the conflict that occurs today between the church and the world. There may be constant conflict, but there will also be a conquering of the serpent by a son. Did you notice that in verse 15? He, speaking of a male child, a son, a male offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Yes, this is a clear reference to a son who would defeat the serpent. Yes, the serpent would deal a vicious blow, but the son would deal a victorious blow. The serpent would strike the heel of the promised son, the promised son would crush the head of the serpent. That's why the remainder of the book of Genesis, and really the Old Testament, is constantly concerned about offspring. With each newborn son, we're asking, is, is this the promised one? Is this the seed who's going to defeat sin and Satan and death? Is this the son we should be waiting for, looking for, hoping for? Is this the one who will bring redemption for ruined rebels? Beloved, this is God's response to man's rebellion, to provide redemption and rescue through a son for all those who, as we sang earlier, who were lost and ruined by the fall. Christians have long recognized the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 as a proto-gospel. It's a, a promise and a preview of what would come in full in Jesus Christ. Frankly, it's why in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Paul uses that phrase, born of a woman, I think to tell us that Jesus is the seed. He recognizes in the coming of God's Son, born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's why the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It's why the writer of the Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, tells us that Jesus took on flesh so that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is, the devil. Satan bruised Jesus' heel in his death on the cross, but Satan crushed, Jesus crushed Satan's head under his feet through his death and resurrection from the dead. Indeed, those who are united to Jesus Christ by faith will themselves, as Paul says in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, soon crush Satan under our feet. That's a promise for you, dear Christian, that in your union with Jesus Christ, you will have victory over this evil one. You will soon crush Satan under your feet. God's response 
to man's rebellion is to judge Satan and promise salvation in Jesus Christ. Though God promises the remedy for sin, yet not all of the earthly consequences for sin are removed. Right? Death has its effect. Judgment has its effect in the world. In fact, the remaining earthly consequences remind us of our need for God's grace and forgiveness. God did promise that in the day that man ate of the fruit, death would enter the world. And God is true. When God speaks to the woman and the man and addresses the consequences of their sin, we see that God's response addresses the very areas that they were designed and to be dedicated to, designed for and to be dedicated to. So there's to be pain in the one's labor of bringing forth children. There will be pain in the man's labor of bringing forth food. In verse 16, we're told of sin's consequences in labor pains. They will greatly increase. This is where I'm sure many sisters in Christ are saying, thanks a lot, Eve. Right? Any woman who has been through birth pains know that God is true. And I wonder if these labor pains are even broader than the initial labor and delivery. I mean, yes, there's pain in the labor of bringing, birthing children. There's pain in the labor of bringing up children. There's pain in the cycles when God has not given children. There's pain in the process of no longer being able to bear children. But even here, we need to see God's grace. For there will be children. There must be children. Because God promised that the woman would have a seed. God's response is mercy in the midst of misery. And mercy will have the last word. And sisters, let me encourage you to recognize that even in those cycles, in the misery of those cycles, God is giving you a tangible sign that He sent His Son. He showed His mercy to you and that He loves you. Mercy has the last word. Not only are there consequences in labor pains, but now there's conflict in love. Did you see that? So the second half of verse 16 tells us when we read, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. We actually read almost the exact same phrase over in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where we're told that sin's desire was to rule over Cain, but that he must rule over it instead. And what I think Moses is saying is that Eve, in her sinful nature, will now attempt to overthrow her husband's headship. Now, many in conservative evangelical circles have kicked against the Bible's teaching here. Uh, but we need to be honest about the effects of sin. If Eve rebelled against God's authority at the tree, and she did, should we really be surprised if she would rebel against her husband's authority in the home? Deep down, we know that sadly, sometimes, wives attempt to overthrow their husband's headship. You know how comedy uh, plays on a truth and makes contact with our lives and we kind of laugh at it? Well, in the movie, uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, the daughter is distraught over dad's decision. She laments that her father is so stubborn and that he will not change his mind because the man is the head of the house. And that's when her mother tells her not to worry. That's when mom says this, let me tell you something. The man is the head, but the woman is the neck, and she can turn the head any way she wants. And sisters, I'm here to tell you it's true. Uh, sometimes wives attempt to overthrow the headship of their husbands, and that can be discouraging. Sisters, you have great power, more power than you, I think you often realize. Uh, constant challenging and complaining, like a slow drip, can wear your husband down. And when that happens, you really can turn the head almost in any way you want. 
But that might not be for your good. Let me tell you a secret about men. We're pretty insecure. And when it comes to our wives, we're actually pretty easily defeated. There's a reason why Paul commands that wives encourage their husbands with respect. We need not just joyful submission, but also support to lead in godly ways. And in ways that bring you good. Moses tells us, sadly, also that a husband, in this verse, a husband will often respond to the attempted theft of his theft of his headship sinfully. In fact, in the latter half of verse 16, it also tells us that a husband might harshly seek to rule over his wife in tyranny. Husbands, you are the heads of your household. You, you don't need to feel threatened. God has established that order. And you ought not threaten. You don't need to feel threatened. And you ought not threaten. Sisters, if you are being abused, then you need, you need to call the authorities, the police, and the elders of your church. The police will respond to the legal case, and the elders will lead the church to prosecute the spiritual case. Abuse is never acceptable and should never be tolerated. You should reach out for help when in need. Husbands, regardless of your wife's temptations and sins, you are called to love and lead like Christ. You must lead. You cannot escape that responsibility or abdicate. But as you lead, you must lead with gentleness and with sacrificial service to your wife. Not exposing her to harm like Adam was tempted to do, but instead covering her and protecting her. Just as Christ does the church, laying his life down for her. Now, in verses 17 to 19, we see sin's consequences in the man's life. Just as the woman experienced consequences in the areas in which he was designed to be dedicated to, so the man will experience difficulty. The consequences of sin in the areas he was designed to be dedicated to, to work the ground. But notice that God actually begins with his word. When the Lord says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, he's underscoring Adam's disobedience to God's word, the Lord's voice. It's not that husbands should never listen to their wives. Actually, wise husbands will listen to their wives and their wisdom. Still, the Lord's voice must rise above every other voice, including the earthly voice you most love and treasure and depend upon. God's voice must command ultimate allegiance and obedience. When the Lord tells Adam that the ground is cursed because of his sin, it is clear that the work of bringing fruit and bread from the ground will be marked by increased pain in his labor. Previously, man only needed to pluck fruit from the tree. But now man would bend over and break his back, looking down at the ground, harvesting. Thorns and thistles would be added to the trouble of man's toil as a reminder of all that he spoiled. And let us remember that even here we're reminded that our Savior overcame that curse on the cross when that crown of thorns was placed upon his head for us. Yes, the fall it brought mankind into, not only in a state of sin and misery, but now the whole creation groans as a consequence of Adam's sin. We know that through the upheaval we see in various natural disasters around the world. Yes, the creation, Paul teaches us in Romans 8, is now longing to be freed from its futility. The earth decays. That which we build breaks down. Nothing lasts forever especially not man's life. You see that in verse 19? The Lord says, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Just as the Lord said, 
Disobedience would lead to death. So it will. Remember Satan's words, you will not surely die. We see with total clarity that he's a liar. On Friday, some brothers and sisters gathered at the cemetery. And we buried our sister in Christ. And as we looked around, there were hundreds of graves everywhere. Every grave in every cemetery proves over and over again that Satan is a liar. And that God is true. Do you see what mankind has lost in his rebellion? Communion with God. Do you see what mankind has gained in his rebellion? Remember, Satan was tempting the author of gaining something. In the end, what does man gain? God's just wrath and curse. He's gained misery in life, in labor, and in love. The wages of sin is death, and unless man is reconciled to God, he will endure the pains of hell forever. That's why I'm so grateful for the very next words. Words in our text are words of grace. In verses 20 and 21, we read of the grace of life and of the grace of atonement for sin. Read Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 now. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. In verse 20, we see the promise that the woman would have seed, offspring, and children is going to unfold. And I actually think we see something of Adam's faith in the promise that God uttered in the previous verses. By calling her Eve, the mother of all living, Adam's believing. Yes, okay, Lord, you're going to give life. You're going to give children. You're going to give seed. I'm trusting your word. And this is the grace of life. That God doesn't bring immediate physical death to the man and the woman. Instead, he extends their lives and through them will bring more lives into the world. So that one day... The life of one son will conquer the lying one. God's good world would not forever suffer under ruin, but will reach redemption through the offspring of the woman. Not only that, but God, He finally adequately clothes the first man and the first woman. And He must do this through atonement, by offering a sacrifice, shedding of blood. This is an animal that's put to death in order to cover Adam and Eve. Your Adam and Eve are brought face to face with the reality that the wages of sin is death. They are shown what dying looks like in an animal dying for them. And what someday they themselves will face. And yet, they're also being shown a promise of redemption through sacrifice. Atonement, a payment is being made for their sins. And the first audience reading this on Mount Sinai would have known exactly what was going on. On what was happening. They received the law and all the Levitical laws for the priests to offer sacrifices using animals to pay for sin. God was providing a sacrifice for their sin because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness for sin. Friends, this is God's response to rebellion. He provides the remedy for our nakedness, He provides the sacrifice for our sin. He covers our shame in His redemption through His Son. And the question I have for you is, is, will you believe God's word like Adam did? Believing that God would send his son. Will you believe that God will provide or has provided a sacrifice for you? Friend, this is the very good news of the Bible. That God has sent his one and only most beloved son to live the life that you and I have not lived. The life that Adam didn't live. Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience to God the Father. He obeyed every law of God personally, perfectly, and perpetually without fail. And Jesus, he laid down his life. The Lamb of God, John says, to take away the sins of the world. He laid down his life, shed his blood on the cross 
for sinners like you and me. And God raised him up from the grave on the third day, showing his victory over sin and death. So that all who turn from their sin and trust in the covering of his blood, the covering of his righteousness given to us on our account, those who turn from their sin and trust in him, believing that he was raised from the grave, the forgiveness of our sins, all will be accepted as righteous in God's sight because they're covered by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, would you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus this day? Jesus has defeated death. He has defeated the devil. And his ascension into glory and reigning at the Father's right hand proves that to us now. You know, in the verses that close the chapter, we even see that God, he limits somewhat the effects of sin in the world and leads rebels out of the garden. Read Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24 now. God sets in motion his plan of redemption here. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In the fall, man and woman became like God in the sense that they started exercising authority, deciding what was good and evil. And in doing so, they didn't become like God in any divine sense. Instead, they become totally depraved. They were also now going to personally and painfully experience evil in the world. God in His grace forbids the man and woman from partaking of the tree of life. This would have caused man to live forever in an unredeemed state. And God would make sure that His grace would reach His goal. So God drove the man out of the garden. He sent him into exile, just like God would send the people of Israel into exile, as was promised in the first five books of the law. Israel would go into exile if they disobeyed God's commands. And now, we all live east of Eden. And since God has set eternity in our hearts, He has actually given us a desire to return to that perfect place of fellowship and communion with Him. Driving the rebellious man out was the only way to bring him back in through the redemption that God had planned. Yes, man would face misery outside of the garden, but it would be through that misery that God would accomplish his gracious goal of mercy. This is what I want us to think about as we conclude. From Genesis 3, we learn that man is rebelled, but that God will redeem through his gracious son. The angels defending the entrance to the garden shows us that only someone unstained by sin can enter into God's glorious presence. And that's what Jesus would accomplish. Jesus would shed his blood to cover sins and give us his righteous robes so that we might be welcomed into God's eternal glory. In fact, Jesus, God's son, the second Adam, would win for his people more than was lost by the first Adam. He would win for us an eternal garden sanctuary with God that could never be lost again. A sanctuary where sin could never enter in and death was known no more. In that glorious kingdom, Jesus will reverse the curse and its consequences. Because of our tasting of that forbidden fruit, death entered the world. But because Jesus tasted death for us, we will enter God's garden world without end. Friend, leave your rebellion behind and instead come to Jesus. Taste and see that the redemption of the Lord Jesus 
is good and glorious. Let's pray together.